But well, for those of you who weren't here last Sunday, we opened up the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians for a few months as we, as we look at it in the first division. And we slowly begin our makeaway through this book. And so for those of you who weren't here last week and you're thinking, well, I wonder what they talked about in that. It's just really starting to become just something uncontrollable in you. Highly unlikely. But I'd like to offer just kind of a flip those version of what we talked about last week. Is everybody on board with that? All right. More than half the group. So last week we opened up the book of Philippians. We did verses 1 through 8. Now, Paul is likely writing this from prison, either in the city of Ephesus or he's in Rome. That's the matter of scholars to decide, and not really very fruitful for us to engage in. But he's sitting in jail and he's writing this letter, which is a, is a letter of thanksgiving because of the support that the Philippian church has offered him. Now, he's received word as to how the Philippian church is doing from Epaphroditus, who brought this message to him, and now he's sending a response to the things that are going on in Philippi. And in verses 1 through 8, the key message, the key thing that Paul drove home to them is that their unity isn't found as a matter of preference, a matter of vocation, or even a matter of where they find themselves, but that their unity is primarily found in the gospel. And he's writing to them in the first 11 verses is this prayer that he's starting to expound on. The center to the whole thing is that their unity is found the gospel. And he traces that over and over again. And in his first story, he talks about, as often as I think about you, I pray for you. And I make my prayer with joy. And in this day, we'll be in verses 9 to 11, which I'll read for us now. Verse 9, he writes, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the the glory and praise of God. So Paul offers this relatively simple prayer. It is not very difficult to understand. It's not very difficult to apply. And the heart of it is, is this idea that our love may abound and that God may be glorified. You see, at the heart of everything we do is this idea that God may be glorified through our actions, through our thoughts, that He may be glorified. That's the central part of what we're about here at Christmas. And that's what Paul is getting to here in the book of Philippians. So he begins the passage and he says, It is my prayer. Now, the ESV and the NIV, that's how they render it. They render it, It is my prayer. But if you have the New American, what you're going to read is, and this I pray. And the idea behind that is the ESV and the NIV are taking a verb and the rendering is a noun. Now it doesn't really do anything to the meaning, but as we look at it, it's important for us to realize the verbal aspect in there. This idea that Paul doesn't write to them and say, hey guys, you know, I heard about you, I heard about some of these things that are going on, I heard about uh, UDA, and oh yeah, you know, I just thought about you guys and I offered up a prayer. That was maybe on Maybe three more months ago. Oh, you're doing good. You see, it's not that he's writing them. He says, hey, you know, at some point in time, I offered up a prayer for you, but I haven't really thought about you a whole lot since then. You see, he's resuming this line of argument that he picked up in verse 4, where he wrote, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. 
You see, it's this idea that every time Paul thinks about them, he's sure in a prayer. Every time that they come to mind, Paul stops what he's doing, and he prays for them. And that prayer is one of obligation of the sense of, man, told them I pray, I better. But he's interceding for them, and he's doing so with joy. Now, you and I have a variety of ways to communicate with people, right? And so if I want to communicate, I want to send somebody a message, I can send them a text message. I can say, hey, praying for you. Or I can go on Facebook, and I can send them a Facebook message, and I can say, hey, praying for you. Or I can call them on the phone and say, hey, praying for you, let me pray for you now. And I can do that on a landline, or I can do that on a cell phone. And if I really want people to be impressed, I'm going to go on the Facebook page, I'm going to go on the wall, and I'm going to write, praying for you, so that everybody sees that I'm praying for this person. And everybody says, wow, he's a really spiritual person. Not only is he praying, but he wants everybody around him to know that he's praying. I don't want to post on anybody's Facebook wall, so I, I can't really become guilty of that. You see, but prayer is more than sending texts, a text message, a Facebook message, posting on a wall, or even if you're so convinced that using an antiquated method of putting pen to paper and using the USPS. Prayer is more than this one-directional communication. You see, prayer works both ways. Prayer is conversing, having conversation with God. But in this Christian ease, this Christian vocabulary that we made, we talk about, hey man, I'll pray for you, it's become nothing more than a salutation, it's become nothing more than a farewell. Pray for me, I'll see you later. Hey, we're about to eat this food, I don't want to get indigestion, so let's pray so that God might bless and transform these Cheetos into something healthy. I hate that more stuff on my fingers. I wonder if you can do something about that. You see, the very risk is prayer. It's talking to God. Prayer is intimate. Prayer is powerful. And so when we think about it in any other way, it weakens our understanding of God because prayer is, is talking, is communicating with God. You know, I don't know if you had this problem, but You'll, you'll be talking to somebody and they'll say, well, you know, mom's going to go in for a test this week and uh, we're not really sure what it is. Maybe it's cancer. Would you pray for my mom? Absolutely, I'll pray for your mom. And then you see them a week later and you're like, oh, man, totally got to pray for your mom. How's your mom? And the whole time in your head, you think, please don't get it, please don't get it, please don't get it. Like, oh, she, she's really good. Thanks so much for praying. And it's really, you know, you almost feel like a truth say, no problem, that one's on me. You know, but in your mind, in your heart, you have this guilt that comes over you because you have to remember to pray. You have to remember to offer a petition on behalf of this person. You see, it's a great blessing that God affords us the opportunity to intercede for our brothers and sisters. But it's one we begin to think of as just casual conversation or this tagline to the end of conversation. The prayer is polluted. We need to return to be a people of prayer. If we expect God to do anything in our lives, in the lives of the people of the church, and in the lives of this community, we have to commit to more than just transitional prayer, plus food, travel, and a short petition to cover those things that we really don't want to enter into. We need to be a people of prayer. Now, if Paul starts to unpack the characteristics of this prayer that he offers them. I don't know why it's the first three or four words are very certain that didn't get me locked down. But he writes and he says, It is my prayer. And what is that? That your love may abound more and more. 
Now again, as we look at this, the, there's a word that's missing in the ESV and the NIV translations, and that word is still. You see, if you read through the translation on the screen, you say, well, Paul is really dealing with a matter of a deficiency of love on behalf of the Philippians. Because he says, maybe your love may have found more. Well, maybe their love is really struggling. But if you look at how it's written out, it's, and that your love may abound still more and more. You see, it wasn't that they had a lack of love, but Paul wants their love to have so much of an abounding impact that it is excessive. That your love may be filled to overflowing. That it might have so much leftover, so much excess, that it is starting to bear on the side of ridiculous. But look, look at what it says up there. Does Paul, what object does Paul associate with love? Does Paul write and say, I pray that your love may abound more and more towards those really difficult people that you're gathering with? Or does he even say, I pray that your love may abound more and more towards your fellow brothers who are so great and clean your house? Or would it have even made sense if Paul had written, I pray that your love would abound more and more as you grow closer to God? These would have all been good and acceptable things to Paul, right? But think about the, the importance of the fact that Paul didn't limit, that Paul didn't restrict the object of said prayer. checklist of things to pray for. I pray for family. Check. I pray for my president. Check. I pray for my president again. Check. I pray for my president one more time. I just really pray for him. Half check. You see, he does, he's not offering a specific list of things to pray for, lest they be tempted to only pray for those things which find them on that list. Lest they be found to think, well, once I pray for these things right here, I'm fine. I'm set. You see, what he wants their lives to look like it's just an overflowing geyser of prayer. That their prayer, as Paul writes elsewhere, will be found to be unceasing throughout their day. That their prayer will be very characteristic in the center of their life. And that their love may abound more and more and more. Now, how does Paul characterize this love? He characterizes it with the words knowledge, and discernment. He wants their love to abound more and more. And he characterizes it, he says, with knowledge and discernment. Well, you know, I did a, I did a study, word study on the word knowledge this week, and I really dug into the Greek and I looked at the etymology and where the word came from and the nuances of the word. So I really wanted to get to the heart of what is knowledge. And at the end of a lot of detailed study, what I came to decide and came to discern is that knowledge does in fact mean knowledge. I was surprised, and maybe some of you are. But he said, I want your love to be characterized that it grows with knowledge. Now, how do we gain knowledge? Well, you might say, well, I, I come to church on Sunday mornings, and I, I listen to you preach, and that's one of the ways I grow in knowledge, so that my love might abound more and more. And I certainly hope that's the case. I certainly hope that it can be said to be that I'm helping you grow in knowledge so that your love may abound more and more. Or maybe you say, well, I go to Bible study on Sunday mornings and I go to church. So I'm really getting you know, kind of a two-for-one deal. I don't have to pay any more for that. You know, I certainly hope that in your Bible study that you're being equipped, that you're being fed, that you're being encouraged and nourished, and you're gaining 
and knowledge, so that your love might abound more and more. But primarily, what Paul would have us to do is to take our theological fork and knife and to dig into this, which is the pure need of the Word. That if he would have us dig into this, that he would have us begin to take it apart on our own so that we could grow in our own knowledge, so that we could learn how to eat, and that we could learn how to take in and digest on our own. I submit to you that if you come on Sunday mornings, if you come and this is the only time that you're being fed, then you're going to grow weak. You see, you can only be fed by someone else for so long before you have to take it upon yourself to feed yourself. I have a almost three-year-old, and I, I long for the day when he can cut up the chicken tenders on his own and begin to eat them on his own. I know he has the skill set to do that because I've seen him go after a peanut butter sandwich or a piece of candy. But for whatever reason, when it comes to vegetables, he's not quite as inclined to feed himself. You see, we tend to exert a lot of effort and energy into doing the things that give us pleasure. Like a child in the beginning. When it comes to those things that our soul longs for, we are hesitant to carve out time in our schedule. Or perhaps we carve out five minutes a day in our schedule. For instance, we're reading through and working through the book of Philippians. For such a short book, you should be able to read Philippians every day. You should be able to read Philippians every day and allow God to speak to you through this book. If you don't already have a plan of reading, and I challenge you to submit through, to submit to reading the book of Philippians on a daily basis. That God might transform your life through the imparting of his words so that you might grow in love and abound more with knowledge. And then he says discernment. You see there's this mistaken belief out there that the more, more rich we grow in our philosophy and our understanding of, of spiritual things, that I guess it's where this phrase comes from of he can be so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. You see, but Paul, as a kind of course corrective in there, he says, knowledge and discernment. And he can equally, well, it is translated, common sense. You see, the way that we, that we grow and how to tell right from wrong, the way that we grow and how to tell what to do and how not to do, or what not to do, is through knowledge and discernment. Now, there's some easy decisions that we can make out there. Would, would God have me walk in here and shoot somebody? No, that's, that's murder, that's wrong. And I'm discharging a firearm in an enclosed space. And so there's a variety of reasons that we would have you do that. But when it begins to become a matter of how I spend my money, or how I spend my time, or whether my wife and I have another child, or whether we take this vacation, or how I answer the questions from my coworkers, and they say, hey, you know, I was. I was going to do, you know, I was going to do Vegas and gambling this weekend. How would you respond to that from a Christian worldview? And instead of just having an eager reaction, you say, Yeah, we're going to up! It's insane. Pretty sure it's going to rub off. And contrary to popular belief, what stays in Pat's Vegas stays in Vegas. I'm pretty sure something's falling on. See, we need to be able to answer those questions. We need to be able to speak from an educated Christian worldview. And we get there by investing in this book. And we get there by growing in knowledge. And we get there, as we grow in knowledge, it cycles back and we continue to grow in love. And as we grow in love and grow in knowledge, our discernment expands. Our discernment expands. 
Now, Paul, moving into verse 10, gives them a purpose for their ever in love. And it's the purpose for approving what is excellent. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent. Now, there was a book written a number of years ago that some of you who are in business might have read from good to great. Has anybody read it? A few hands. And so this book is called Good to Great. It's really founded around this idea of taking average companies and going through a detail of what they need to do to be the next level company. So they look at things like having the right employees, having the right products, uh, making sure you spend uh, resources on those things that are going to grow your business, and not just spend resources on those things that are, that are going to keep you average. You see, you and I, we do some of these things in our life. We invest a great deal of time and energy in our business. Uh, for those of you who work in the business industry, you exert a tremendous amount of effort to do well in business. For those of you who are homemakers, you exert a tremendous amount of effort, probably more than the people that are in the business industry, to get your kids clothed, to clean your house, to do all the many tasks that you could have never gained three college degrees, but yet you find yourself in this job doing. You see, we find time, we find time to invest in those things of our lives, our personal life, so that we can be found excellent in those. But what Paul would have them do is, is to test things and do what is excellent. To do the things that are excellent. Not that we simply strive to do just good enough. Not that we simply strive to do even those things that people might see and say, wow, they did a really, 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 really good job. But when we're testing and approving things, when we're evaluating decisions, when we're evaluating motives, when we're evaluating what to do next, we do those things. You see, reading this some 2,000 years later, 
at the ascension of Christ, there's this tendency not to see his imminent return is very much of an encouragement at all to do things well. I mean, uh, this year I think there's been at least a handful of people that have said the world is going to end, uh, whether they define it from the Mayan calendar or some guy living in Ohio. It doesn't matter. You see, we see these people prove wrong time and time again, and while you might be tempted to think it doesn't have that much of an effect on you, what it really does is drive home this idea that, that nobody knows if he's coming back. We really should even think about it. You see, the first part of that is correct. Nobody knows when Christ is going to return. But equally true, none of us know how long we'll live. None of us know how much longer we'll live, whether it will be the remainder of today or two weeks to ten years. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. None of us is guaranteed tomorrow. And this incentive of his return should drive us to holy living. Should drive us to holy living. But our tendency is towards lethargy and laziness. And I'm not just speaking uh, to you, I'm speaking of myself. It's difficult to stay motivated towards the cross. It's difficult to keep that before us. And that's why we have to have a concerted effort to keep reminding ourselves that he is returning, he is coming soon. And I must be found to be diligent in the task of approving what is excellent. And then he talks about having a pure and a blameless life. Now, pure here could, could just as well have been translated as sincere. Now, when they were making pottery uh, around the time of Christ in, in Rome, and they would take fine pottery, it would be very thin. Now, during the firing technique, when they put it in the oven and let it cure the oven, it could develop really thin cracks right along the outside. But one of the ways to hide that crack is they would take wax and then they would rub it inside those cracks and crevices. Now, if they didn't paint the thing, it was pretty clear, hey, look, you have wax inside. It's like, no, 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 that's just, you know, it's an intricate design, it's very abstract. But once they painted it, it would be very difficult to tell that this thing was painted, that it had any cracks inside of it. But if you took it out and you held it up to the sunlight and you began to turn the thing, they were so thin that the sunlight would travel through it. But the sun couldn't penetrate those areas where the wax was used to mask the cracks. You and I have become very clever at applying wax to the sin in our lives. To cover those areas where we have inconsistencies, to cover those areas where we struggle. But when our lives are held up against the pure sunlight of the Word of God, they're readily revealed. We begin to deal with them so that we can be found pure or sincere, which, which when rendered part of Latin means without wax. We want to live lives that are pure. Now, purity details a vertical relationship with God. We want to live lives that are found to be pure to Him. And blameless evaluates the horizontal application of how I live in relation to those I've got myself in community with. We want to live lives of purity to God, but we also want to live lives blameless so that we can have a good name in the community. So that when we do business in the marketplace, somebody says, oh, you can trust Joe. His word is his bond. You can absolutely trust what he says to be true, that he will not over-promise and under-deliver, but that what he says will hold true. Or you can trust your, your children to this family. 
They are good and righteous family. They are blameless in the marketplace. Can you envision a church of pure and blameless people? Nobody's thinking that. I mean, it's a difficult thing to think about. But see, this is what we like. This is what we aim for. That I can become to be pure before God. And then I can kind of be blameless among our brothers and sisters. Not causing discord or strife in the body. Not seeking to advance my own agenda, but driving towards this Paul wrote in the first day verses, driving towards a unity and a fellowship founded on the gospel. We need to be pure and blameless. And lastly, Paul puts the cast on, on this in verse 11. He says that you may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes to Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now, Paul or John writes in John 55, speaking of the fruit, this is Jesus. Jesus Christ, he says, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, I am him. He is that, bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, our fruit, this righteous fruit that Paul writes about, which he also enumerates in Galatians. In Galatians, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the things that Paul here paints in this picture that we may be found to have in our lives on the day that Christ returns. He says on the day that he returns, we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And it comes from Jesus Christ. You see, lest we go to Galatians and we flip over to Galatians 5 and we say, I, I really want that fruit in my life. I really want love. And I say, okay, well, Zach, what are you going to do to develop fruit in your life? He said, well, you know, I've, I've adopted a blind rabbit pit bull. And I really thought that if, if I can love him and he can love me, then I can really be to foster love in my life. Because that's, that's what I'm going to do for that
test of proving what is excellent, being pure and blameless, is the development and the growth of that fruit in our lives. So that we can be people who actually have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, flowing from us, flowing from our lives. Now that is a group of people who can be unified with us. Now that is a set of character traits that we should seek to emulate, that we should seek to model ourselves after. You see, all of this is lost. All of this is lost if we don't look at the last thing Paul writes. He says, to the glory and praise of God. You see, at the heart of all our endeavors, at the heart of all the ministry, things that we try and do here at Rich Christ, at the heart of everything that we are trying to do as Christians, if we lose vantage point, if we lose the direction that we're headed in, that if we do all of this so that God may be praised, so that glory might, might come to Him. And it's all for now. And it's absolutely all for now. We don't do it so that I can look better so that we can have more people in the sanctuary. We don't even do it so that we can be a part of something amazing. We do everything that God might be praised and glorified. And we make all our decisions upon that, proving what is excellent, that we may be found full of fruit on the day of Christ, through Jesus. That God may be glorified.